This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for May 4th, 2020. Bringing world peace is usually the preserve of politicians and the odd beauty queen. It's not usually the goal of entrepreneurs. We haven't had that since Coca-Cola wanted to teach the world to sing. But on this podcast, we talk to someone who wants to bring global harmony through business. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic. What matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. And coming up for you in this podcast. It's not terribly controversial that joblessness breeds frustration, anger, and violence. But there was, there was huge joblessness, for example, in the Depression era in the United States. Nobody started a genocide then. Well, it, that's true. But in the United States, the crime rate absolutely did go up. That's coming up shortly. But first, I want to thank all of my donors on Patreon. I really appreciate them all. And if you're not one of them, Patreon is a website that allows people to donate a buck or two per podcast or per month. And that helps me to devote more time to research and finding interesting guests. If you think that you could do the same as them, there's details on the website and at the end of the show. Sometimes it's hard to tell if the idiots are getting more numerous or just louder. Whichever it is, there certainly seems to be a cacophony of stupid out there. I won't even bother discussing whether it's a good idea to tell people to drink disinfectant, or to actually drink disinfectant, or to tell people who've seen the recording of you talking about drinking disinfectant that you didn't say that at all. That's been done to death. You might laugh at that, and laugh at the possibility of anyone taking it seriously, and then move on to laughing at the people who did take it seriously. But you might not be aware that there exists a whole subculture out there of people who convince each other that forcing their kids to drink chlorine, that's the highly toxic stuff that you disinfect swimming pools with, they force their kids to drink it, and when they can't drink it anymore because they've vomited too much, they force it into their anuses with an enema. Many children have suffered serious poisonings as a result. And, wouldn't you know it, there's a hugely profitable cult religion that specialises in selling the chemical and convincing people that it's God's one true medicine. But as soon as anything hits the news, conspiracy theorists seem to be able to build it into their crackpot ideas. The coronavirus is no exception. One of the theories entirely unburdened with evidence, is that 5G cell phone antennas are the cause of the coronavirus. This is totally contradictory of the previous anti-5G conspiracy theories, but if you're looking for consistency, you're in the wrong place. There are some vague claims that someone somewhere got COVID-19 after 5G towers had been installed, but they totally ignore the fact that there is no correlation at all between countries with serious outbreaks like Iran, which have no 5G connections. 
These people also prey on an uneasiness that most ordinary people have about radiation without understanding it so well. I explained this in an episode last year, episode 116, if you want to look it up. 5G just means the fifth update to mobile phone technology. All technology is being updated all the time, but where new cars, for example, can have updated engines or tires any time, with mobile communications, these updates must come in organized waves because all the handsets have to talk to the base stations and they must all have the same interoperable standards. It's still just data and voice traffic being transmitted over radio waves, as has been happening for more than a century. It's true that higher frequency radiation has more energy and can seriously harm people, but lower frequency radiation, such as light, light is just radiation that can be picked up by specialized organs in our body called eyes, lower frequency radiation just doesn't have the energy to do us any harm. Radio waves are lower frequency again than light, and on top of that, they are far, far less powerful, millions of times less powerful than normal daylight. But that doesn't stop the idiots, and, you know, most of the time, I'm happy to let the idiots have at it. If they amuse themselves by imagining conspiracies around every corner, then let them do that. But when they start interfering with other people, it's time to put a stop to it. There are a couple of reasons for this. One is that in the UK, dozens of cell phone towers have been seriously vandalised, apparently by people deluded into believing this 5G conspiracy theory. The fact that only a minority of towers that the vandals set on fire actually have any 5G equipment is hardly important to such deluded people. But if it's cell phone towers today, it can be some other public utility tomorrow, and that's not an accident. There are strong indications that these conspiracy theories are being stoked online by thousands of organised social media accounts that bear the hallmarks of a state-backed campaign. Why should an enemy waste resources attacking you when they can get us to attack each other? So some of that stupid you hear may seem to be getting louder for a reason. And it's not all that stupid after all. It's actually smart, pretending to be stupid. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On the line, I have Stephen Coltai. He's an entrepreneur, a longtime business executive and a foreign policy expert with a focus on entrepreneurship. In 2016, the Brookings Institution published his book, Peace Through Entrepreneurship, Investing in a Startup Culture for Security and Development. Stephen, what's the premise of your book and what's the connection between investing and peace? Well, the, the premise of the book is that um, there is a straight line connection between uh, jobs or rather joblessness mm -hmm. and uh, political um, uh, unrest, in fact, uh, leading to violence and war. Mm -hmm. And if you if you look at um, uh, over many centuries, actually, not even just in our modern times, uh, the, to the extent that we have the data, uh, the correlation between um, 
unemployment rates and violent conflict, you'll see a very high rate of correlation. Um, and in fact, as unemployment rates rise, there is uh, a, a corresponding increase in uh, political conflict, political unrest, and eventually violence. So mm -hmm. that is the premise of the book: that if you if you create jobs, um, you 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 have you go a long way towards stemming violence. And the best way to create jobs, um, certainly in the U.S. experience, has been through entrepreneurship. The vast majority of job creation in the U.S. Uh, historically has mm -hmm. occurred through um, uh, entrepreneurship and the creation of new enterprises. So hence the, the basic theory of the book. Okay, I want to look at a couple of those and we go through those in order. But one that I have seen is that there is a list of the most democratic to least democratic countries in the world listed in order. Uh, this is produced by The Economist magazine. And there's also a list of the wealthiest to the poorest countries in the world listed to order. And there are a few variations. But for the most part, that's the same list. The more democratic a country is, the more wealthy it is. Does that speak to what you're talking about as well, that as well as entrepreneurship creating peace, that entrepreneurship and wealth in particular is strongly associated with strongly democratic countries? I, I mean, yes, I think that is true. I haven't um, studied it myself uh, from from the, the angle of the relationship between democracy mm -hmm. and and wealth as much as I have between jobs or joblessness to look at the converse mm -hmm. um, and political stability. But I think that's true. I, 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 I will say just anecdotally, um, I, I think you have to be careful uh, when you when you use the word democracy, because there are many different flavors of democracy and there are a lot of places that consider themselves to be democratic, um, but that others don't necessarily agree. So it's a it's a bit of a of a semantic, um, you know, rabbit hole. But sure. sure. Um, if you have if you have the word democratic in the name of your country, you're almost certainly living in a communist dictatorship. Um, exactly. But, but <laughs> <laughs> what, what I want to do then is I just want to look at a little bit of what you said. And you said that there's a very strong correlation between unemployment in a country and violence. Is that always true? Because the one example that comes to my mind is the terrorism in Taliban-related terrorism, particularly in Pakistan. And it's anecdotal, but also it has been demonstrated that there's a strong correlation between people who, for example, commit suicide bombings, particularly against religious minorities there, are not unemployed people. They're not at the bottom of the heap. They tend to be kids, usually very young, uh, maybe older teenagers or young people in their young 20s who come from quite privileged, well-off, well-educated backgrounds. Does that correlation break down sometimes? Well, as with any um, sort of uh, statistic that looks at a huge sample, mm -hmm. you are always going to find um, a, a exceptions to the rule uh, when you look at specific individuals. Osama bin Laden is the one that everyone always talks about. You know, mm -hmm. rich kid went bad. Um, the fact of the matter is that when, when I when I got involved in all of this, which was about 13 years ago, when I joined 
um, the State Department under President Obama and Secretary Clinton as the first senior advisor for entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. The, my job was to um, implement uh, a basic policy that President Obama enunciated in uh, the beginning of his of his term when he gave a speech at Cairo University um, called New Beginnings. And the premise, the, the, the line of the speech that I was hired to implement was related to this specific point. His 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 theory was that the U.S. has to figure out some other way to interact with the Muslim world besides um, uh, simply trying to counteract terrorism all the time. And one of the ways is to recognize what the roots of that terrorism is, um, which is uh, r- rampant rates of youth unemployment. And if you look, for example, at the Arab world, Overall, the Arab world has the highest rate of youth unemployment of any region in the entire world. Okay, pause, now, pause on that, pause on that, because I want to hold on to that idea for a second. And that was the position of the Obama government. That's clearly something that you hold fast to. But this has been disputed, and particularly people on the right will say that, no, it's something particular about the culture and the religion of the Islamic world that makes them uniquely prone to terrorism, to violence. Do you reject that entirely and say that this is purely an economic analysis? Well, I, I certainly reject it entirely if, if, to the extent that it's it's about their, their religion or their culture. I've done a lot of, of case studies, including Rwanda and Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at the um, violence in those two countries, um, in, in the case of Rwanda, the genocide between Hutus and Tutsis, in the case of Ireland, obviously, between Protestants and Catholics, um, none of those people are Muslim. And 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 none of them. And and in in the case of Rwanda, particularly, uh, many people, um, I, I certainly am among them, agree that at least in the last hundred years, including the Second World War, the Rwandan genocide was the most violent um, uh, political meltdown, if you will, mm-hmm. of any country uh, that we know. Mm-hmm. We've and mentioned in, this on the podcast recently. Those, a million, a million people were murdered in just a couple of months. Uh, it was really a remarkable right. event. Right. And 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 by the way, just to continue the Rwanda example, which is one of my favorite uh, uh, case studies, uh, Rwanda um, embraced uh, the promotion of entrepreneurship uh, towards uh, as, as, a, as a key tool to job creation after the genocide, mm-hmm. uh, which ended only about 25 years ago. And in that space of time, uh, Rwanda's per capita income has quadrupled. Um, it is has by far and away, in my view, um, having worked in, in entrepreneurship all over the world for now almost 15 years, uh, the most robust entrepreneurial ecosystem in all of sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, President Kagame put uh, the support of entrepreneurship and programs to support entrepreneurs at the very top of his economic policy agenda. Mm-hmm. And um, in a, in a, in a re- remarkably short period of time, um, it's been it's been hugely successful. Um, so I would I would argue, by the way, in, in Ireland as well, as you well know better than I, mm-hmm. um, there has also been a commensurate um, a dramatic increase in entrepreneurship, um, which has corresponded. Uh, and I think not coincidentally with increasing wealth and decreasing unemployment. Which do you think? What's the direction of causation there? Well, I think that I, I mean, it, to me, it's it, it's not terribly controversial that joblessness breeds frustration, 
anger and violence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so so. To, well, there was there was huge joblessness, for example, uh, in the Depression era in the United States. Nobody started a genocide then. You would have to agree that sure, this may be a contributing factor. There do seem to be other factors, though. Well, that's true. But in the United States, two things happened. One is that the crime rate absolutely did go up um, during the Depression, substantially. Yes, and yes. Two, on, uh, hold on. But on, on a matter of scale, the crime rate went up. That may also have been associated with a prohibition. But there was nothing remotely akin to genocide. Oh, no, no, of course not. But the United States had a far uh, different and, 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 and functioning state apparatus. You had you had uh, National Guard and federal troops in the streets. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rwanda had none of those things. Um, in addition, um, relatively quickly after uh, the, 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 the Depression, um, much as is happening, by the way, with coronavirus today, mm-hmm. uh, the U.S. government does what the U.S. government always does, which is throw unfathomable amounts of money in, at, you know, at the problem. So the creation of the New Deal and the the public works projects that very quickly, you know, given the scheme of things, employed millions and millions of people mm-hmm. uh, is, is is not that different from, you know, pumping two trillion, which is about to, I think, be increased into the economy at this time. Obviously, places like Rwanda had none of the resources to do that. And then I just want to look a little bit more closely, drill down into that. Is it the case, and I genuinely don't know the answer, so maybe you, your research has told you this. I'm aware of what's called the Gini coefficient, and the Gini coefficient is a mathematical expression, essentially to measure inequality in a society. It doesn't measure how rich the richest people are or how poor the poorest people are. It measures how much inequality there is, and that could be at the top of the wealth scale or at the bottom. And the Gini coefficient very closely tracks the amount of violence in a society. So the more unequal a society is, the more violent it is. And is it possible that that's what you're measuring when you get large amounts of unemployment in any, uh, in any country? You are getting a lot of inequality and that's what's triggering the violence. I, I think um, that that is probably also true. I think that is uh, certainly uh, the data would support that. Uh, again, I make the distinction between um, sort of political meltdown and the breakdown of, of law and order in civil society. Um, so, for instance, in the United States, um, where we have a very substantially growing disparity uh, between rich and poor, mm-hmm. so where where income inequality is rising, mm-hmm. we have I, I won't say we have necessarily a breakdown of government, but we certainly have levels of violence that are far greater than other developed countries. Um, you know, yeah, that, that's aided, what I was driving towards. That's, that's, by, that's what I was driving towards. Laws. That's what I was driving towards, Stephen, because the spread of wealth is huge within countries, but it's also huge between countries. And it might be cold comfort to somebody living in the projects in some perhaps cities in the Rust Belt or whatever, that in fact their disposable income is way higher than a huge proportion of the population of the planet. 
even though they are living in, in unquestionably living in poverty. And people in those areas, inner city areas in the, uh, in the United States, are living in very, very violent places that are also much richer than perhaps some uh, countries in Africa or in the Caribbean or South America. And it seems to me that the correlation between poverty and violence is not as strong as the correlation between inequality and violence. Do you get that distinction and where do you, where do you fall on that? Well, first of all, I'll, I'll just say that, you know, the, the people in the de- de- depressed places that you um, mentioned in the U.S., you know, they don't compare themselves to people in Malawi. They That's my point. That's my point. The, they see, if right. they go to the downtown area or whatever, they see very right. wealthy Americans. Right. And But my point is there that, in fact, uh, employment rates in the United States are relatively high. People have very poor minimum wage jobs that make it very difficult for them to live and so forth. But they have, the employment rate has been up to a couple of weeks ago when we got hit by the coronavirus, but typically the employment rate is much, much higher in the US than it is in most poor countries and also higher than it is in Western Europe. There is very little structural unemployment. There's very little permanent unemployment built into the system. And Nevertheless, you get very high rates of violence, certainly by first world standards. Oh, oh yes, but you, you, I'm, I'm talking about um, the Rwandan genocide. I'm talking about mm-hmm. um, the meltdown of, 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 of Syria. I'm talking about, you know, um, Ireland's history. None of those None of those levels of, of, of political meltdown mm-hmm. um, is, it comes close to describing the United States at any point in its history, except possibly the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, so, so I I I I I understand that you know uh, inequality breeds violence and lacks uh, gun controls breed violence, but I'm making a distinction between the meltdown mm-hmm. of the political order. Um, which is what I would characterize most of the, the failed states in the Middle East that President Obama sought to try to address. These were places with 40 and 50 percent published unemployment rates. Yes. And I remember when I was doing the work at the State Department in the case of, for example, Egypt, which is the first country I worked in. There was a 40% published unemployment rate and they didn't count women. Yes, yes. And I appreciate what you're saying. But my point is that it is possible that it is the inequality rather than the unemployment itself that is the driver of the problem. And if you were to create a situation whereby everybody was just as poor and had as high an unemployment rate as they do now, and where there was just as much inequality in the society, but people had to go out and work minimum wage jobs to stay alive rather than sitting at home, it's possible that that would not solve the problem. Well, it, to me, it's not an either or question. Um, to me, it's uh, we ought to be addressing both. Mm-hmm. Um, we ought to be addressing unemployment and we ought to be addressing income inequality. I'm I, I, I have have for my in terms of my own work, I, I, addressing in, income inequality is way above my pay grade. Okay. Addressing employment creation through spurring entrepreneurship where there are very specific things that we know Mm 
you can do programmatically. We There is evidence of things you can do, which is what my book is about and what my work is about. It's, you know, it's well, about let's, let's move on to the ecosystem that. to create jobs. Think, thinking of the, the, the top things that can be done, can you give me the elevator pitch for the number one thing to do? Yes. So the premise of the book is uh, what I call the six plus six model for entrepreneurship ecosystem building, which says there are six categories of activity and six categories of player that must be woven together to spur entrepreneurship. And that if you do any one thing um, alone, it will not move the needle. You Mm -hmm. have to have an integrated program. And the six categories of activity are identify, train, connect, and sustain, fund, enable public policy, and celebrate entrepreneurs. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Slow down, slow down, slow down. My brain is, is, is not catching up with you yet. Start with the first one of those. Identify entrepreneurs. Uh-huh. Then next step? Train. Mm-hmm. The next one is connect and sustain. Okay, so, so what does that like mean? Train, it's finding people and training them, that's good. Connect and sustain. Is that connecting them with each other? That is connecting them with each other. That is providing mentoring. That is uh, creating uh, structures like uh, incubators and accelerators that support them, that sustain them. Mm-hmm. So all of those are examples of programs that fall under the connect and sustain heading. And um, next fund, which um, in in my world is not so much about spurring venture capital as it's about spurring angel investor groups at the local level, mm-hmm. um, which is which is something that we're very good at in the United States um, and which where we know what are the things you can do that spur local angel investors versus not. And those are everything mm-hmm. from training them to tax policy to the creation of of investment structures uh, that favor small angel investors. So there are a whole bunch of things you can actually do. Okay. And Stephen, then the final idea, those things seem very laudable and they seem like relatively low cost things to do. It's not like multi-billion dollar programs. Correct. Can Correct. You, can you then tell me, what would you say to somebody in the US who said, hang on a second, even if that's a small amount of money, that's money that could be spent on people who need help in the US and not some other place in the world that they might not even have heard of. What's your elevator pitch for saying, no, actually, it's good for the US to help out those countries? 9-11. Oh, very. Is my elevator. Very, it's very, my elevator pitch. Very, very <laughs> succinct answer. Can you give it in a full sentence? Well, this was the whole point of the Obama administration's uh, proposal was that you can't, you know, contrary to what the president thinks, you can't build a wall uh, to wall off and fence off your little piece of turf. And eventually, um, whether it is, you know, in something as dramatic as 9-11 or something that's a little more sort of insidious, um, you know, like cyber warfare, mm-hmm. uh, societies that are collapsing um, are going to hurt you. Stephen Coltai, entrepreneur, longtime business executive and author of Peace Through Entrepreneurship. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. Make your view heard. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com to set out your ideas and defend them on the next podcast. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at ChallengingO on Twitter, and follow Stephen Coltai at S. Coltai. And get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or a topic for a future show. 
Also, thanks to everyone who's signed up as a patron on Patreon. So far, I really appreciate them helping me to devote more time to researching topics and guests. And if you could do the same as them and donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, go to patreon.com slash challenging opinions, or you'll find that link on the website. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming up next Monday, that's May 11th, I'll be talking to the sociology professor, Rishon Ray, about race and policing. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.